1977 was the year of the Silver Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II's reign. Yet, not everyone was happy with the royal family or what they represented. In today's podcast, we are going to explore the British musicians who protested the monarchy in the late 1970s and 1980s. If you lived in England in the summer of 1977, you couldn't avoid the hoopla over the Silver Jubilee, celebrating 25 years of Queen Elizabeth II's reign as the English monarch. Everywhere you looked, there were banners, souvenirs, commemorations, and parties celebrating the royal family. What you also couldn't escape was the arrival of a new kind of music in the air, punk rock. And if there was ever a band that personified punk rock in 1977, it was the Sex Pistols, who rocketed to the top reaches of the British national charts with a song, well, really a manifesto, uh, not so much a song, uh, that was titled God Save the Queen, that damned the royal family and all that it stood for in no uncertain terms. Today in our podcast, we revisit the eventful year as a starting point in our survey of a long list of British musicians who sang and performed in direct opposition to the monarchy. Our journey today will take us, in particular, to the music of three iconic British bands who took a strong stand against the monarchy. The Sex Pistols first, then the Smiths, and then the Stone Roses. The story actually begins in the summer of 1976, the year before the Silver Jubilee. It was the hottest summer in England since record-keeping began in the British Isles, more than 350 years before. It was so hot that the English actually rationed water, and believe it or not, Parliament actually appointed a minister for drought. And for millions of people, heat wasn't the only problem. England was in the throes of a severe recession with more people unemployed than at any time since 1940. As the frustrations of a generation of English youth boiled over into resentment, a new music, full of noise and fury, emerged in the clubs of London and Manchester. Punk music wasn't entirely new. You could trace some of its DNA to the garage rock of American 60s bands such as the Velvet Underground and Stooges. Look out. Its fashion sensibility uh, came from New York bohemians, uh, such as Patti Smith and television. And its ideology could be found in Paris 68 when student radicals went marching against bourgeois values. 
But its voice, its message, was undeniably British. Punk was the cry of anger and frustration of a British generation lost to economic failure, who resented the hippies for selling out and were bored just completely stiff with the trappings of English middle-brow entertainment. A large part of that anger and frustration, fueled by unemployment, was directed at the most British of institutions, the Queen of England. Leading the pack of British punk was, of course, the Sex Pistols, based out of Soho in London, whose public image was represented most strikingly by their lead singer Johnny Rotten, an unusually articulate and intelligent young man who shocked middle-brow Britain by going on TV and swearing a lot and, and swearing in his records. The Sex Pistols released their first single, the appropriately titled Anarchy in the UK, in November of 1976, but it was their second single, God Save the Queen, released on Virgin Records on May 27, 1977, that proved to be one of the greatest media events of the year. Everything about the record was designed to offend the stiff upper lip of the increasingly disconnected royal family. Or at least that was the perception. song, Johnny Rotten sneered, God save the queen, the fascist regime, they made you a moron, a potential H-bomb. In the next verse, he went one better with a personal attack on Queen Elizabeth. God save the queen, she ain't no human being, there is no future in England's dreaming. It ended with a repeated cry that there was no future in England, no future for you, and no future for me. The cover of the single was an imaginative Dadaist piss take of the Queen, showing her regal face marred by various punk iconography. Many record shops just refused to carry the, the single, to even to stock it in their stores, shocked by its near blasphemous words and its offensive cover. In an unprecedented decision, the BBC banned the record, a move followed by all independent radio stations in Great Britain. It became, in the words of The Guardian, the most heavily censored record in British history. Very deliberately, the release of the record coincided with a circus-like media hoopla over the Queen's Silver Jubilee. On June 7, 1977, the actual day of the Jubilee, the Sex Pistols hired a private boat to sail down the Thames past Westminster Pier and the Houses of Parliament while they performed God Save the Queen in all its cacophonous glory. The event, supposed to mock the actual Jubilee procession planned for two days later, ended in chaos, but garnered much publicity and condemnation in the British media. Amazingly, despite being banned, the record sold an astonishing 200,000 copies that week, allowing it to reach number two in the national pop charts. Some, including Virgin chairman Richard Branson, claim to this day that the British Phonographic Institute, who maintained the charts, deliberately kept the song off the number one spot despite it having far outsold the supposed top song of that week, which was by Rod Stewart. So it's hard to overestimate the power of the Sex Pistols in terms of the direction of British 
popular culture. In the words of John Savage, the cultural critic who wrote the classic England's Dreaming, a mammoth treatise on the origins of the punk rock movement, what was so great about God Save the Queen was that it was confident, clear, unapologetic. So much so that it gave a voice to everyone who hated the Jubilee. And there were many more of them who hated the Jubilee than ever would be officially acknowledged. Because of that connection between the Sex Pistols and the Silver Jubilee, a generation of young British kids were taken with the urgency of punk. Consider the Sex Pistols' first show in Manchester that hot summer of 1976, June 4th, 1976, at the Manchester Free Trade Hall, to be completely precise here. If you happened to be among the 40 people in attendance that day, you would have probably run into a bunch of young men and women who inspired by all the noise, would soon go and form their own bands. Just at that one show were future members of Joy Division, New Order, Buzzcocks, Magazine, Simply Red, and the young Stephen Patrick Morrissey, who would later found one of the great British pop bands of the 1980s, The Smiths, or at least the great British pop bands of the 1980s, in my opinion. In America, the Smiths are known as somewhat of a fey band singing navel-gazing songs suitable for self-absorbed, angsty teens with slicked-back hair. But in Britain in the 1980s, they had a very strong political identity as a band with progressive politics, supporting working-class causes and animal rights and campaigns against racism. Perhaps their most potent musical statement was the title track off their epic 1986 album, the Queen is Dead, considered by many to be one of the greatest British albums of all time. Morrissey, the young lyricist and the singer for the band, was, and I should mention still is, notorious for his anti-royal family stance, opening his mouth on many an occasion to rail against the thick wit, his, his words, that is Prince Charles, frequently calling the royal family a colossal embarrassment to the United Kingdom. The album's title track, The Queen is Dead, is built around an army of electric guitars played by Morrissey's songwriting partner, Johnny Marr, and has a ferocious sound that gives it a massive footprint, as if a tsunami is hitting you in the face. Morrissey parodies the British media's fascination with the royal family, but also parodies the royals themselves in a scathing attack on the moral bankruptcy of the queen and her minions. In a triple critique, he connects the opiates of alcohol and religion to the royal family's continued hold on the English people. He sings, past the pub that wrecks your body, 
and the church, all they want is your money. The Queen is dead, boys. The biggest musical weekly of the time, Newsweekly of the time, the New Musical Express, named this Smith's album the second greatest British album of all time, which shows that the anti-royalty sentiment expressed in these songs were actually rather mainstream and had at least critical acceptance and was not at all obscure. With Margaret Thatcher at the helm of a conservative Tory party that was seen to be very hostile towards the working classes, the 1980s was an especially rich period for opprobrium against the upper classes. This kind of sentiment was not at all rare or considered odd. In fact, it was part of the mainstream of British pop. For example, one of the most critically acclaimed and beloved bands of the 1980s, British pop scene, The Stone Roses, shared with the Smiths a healthy disdain for the royal family. On their massive self-titled debut album, they featured a song called Elizabeth, My Dear, that directed the monarch herself, or was directly addressed to her. This song was based on the melody of a traditional English folk song, Scarborough Fair, but the Stone Roses overlaid it um, with a song that did not mince their words about the Queen. Uh, they write, uh, or they sing, Tear me apart and boil my bones, I'll not rest till she's lost her throne. My aim is true, my message is clear, it's curtains for you, Elizabeth, my dear. It wasn't only the Sex Pistols, the Smiths, and the Stone Roses who sang such songs challenging the royal family. There is an entire tradition of such songs in modern British pop, with other artists such as the Exploited, Billy Bragg, the Pet Shop Boys, the House Martins, Manic Street Preachers, Primal Scream, Chumbawamba, and of course, Morrissey in his solo career. What to make of all of this music against the Queen and the royal family? Well, in one case, there has always been an anti-royalist sensibility in English culture. You can probably date the sentiment, well, not probably, definitely date the sentiment to the English Civil War in the 17th century, and perhaps we can go even earlier than that. That these ideas would come out in rock and pop music isn't very surprising given the capacity of rock and roll to convey youth rebellion. I mean, that's basically what it was there for. But in comparison to American popular music, the politics of American musicians were often muted or covered in ambiguity, um, at least at that time, comparatively speaking, whereas there's always been an explicit anti-authoritarian strain in British pop music since the late 1960s. And you didn't really have to go very far to find it or look very hard to find it. In 1969, none other than John Lennon, he of the Beatles, basically insulted the Queen by returning his MBE award to Buckingham Palace with a handwritten note saying how he was divesting himself of the award because of British support for America's involvement in Vietnam. But what is, I think, very unique is that uh, the anti-authoritarianism um, that existed in Britain also existed simultaneously with a generous strain of I guess the, the most proper word for it would be romanticism about a lost Britain. 
Consider Johnny Rotten's pronouncement recently that, quote, you don't write God Save the Queen because you hate the English race. You write a song like that because you love them and you're fed up with them being mistreated, unquote. It's no surprise that when film director Danny Boyle decided to make a playlist of the great British pop music of the last half century to soundtrack his magnificent tribute to British history in the London Olympics opening ceremony in 2012, the fifth song of the night was the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen. What did the Queen, who was in attendance uh, at that ceremony, think of this? I guess we'll never know. But we do know that in the 35 years since its release in 1977, that the Sex Pistols song had become as much a part of Britain and, and its collective memory as the real original God Save the Queen. Both represent the vast and complex character of modern British history, with its love of the old, monarchy, tradition, and all that, and its leap into the future, measured in the iconoclasm and innovation that punk represented. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.